This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on anorexia nervosa. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. The lifetime prevalence estimates of anorexia nervosa are 0.9% for females and 0.3% for males. Anorexia nervosa can cause considerable morbidity and is also associated with higher mortality. So it's important that we get the treatment of this condition right. To tell us how to do this, we have on the line Professor Evelyn Atia, Professor of Psychiatry, Columbia University and Weill Cornell Medical College, New York. And importantly, Evelyn is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Evelyn, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what exactly is anorexia nervosa? Well, thanks, Kieran. Um, anorexia nervosa is really characterized by three things. Uh, first, um, individuals take in less than what they need in terms of calories or energy, leading to a significantly low body weight. And this is a significantly low weight for the individual. So recommended weights are different for males and females, uh, different certainly by age, different based on uh, somebody's prior level of physical health. Um, And we really want to think individually about what is healthy for a person. Uh, But this illness is characterized by low weight compared to healthy for that individual. In addition, there's fear of gaining weight or becoming fat or behaviors that suggest such. There certainly are some folks who don't uh, articulate that they are afraid of becoming fat, but when asked to change weight, we really do see behaviors that get in the way of normalizing weight, even though they've been informed that they are significantly low in weight when they present. And thirdly, there's a disturbance in the way body weight or shape is experienced. Um, This is commonly called body image concern, Um, and for sure, in this condition, um, individuals spend a lot of time thinking about uh, parts of their body or their general sense uh, of their body shape and weight. There are two types of anorexia nervosa. Uh, There's the restricting type and the binge purge type, and these are really to help classify for the provider uh, what the predominant methods are that an individual uses to restrict intake. For some folks, it's really about uh, eating less, eating very little. Um, And for others, the behaviors may include some episodes of overeating or some episodes of of compensatory behaviors such as vomiting uh, following eating. And uh, for the provider, it's very useful to know which symptoms um, uh, somebody has as they present with this low weight state. Okay, thank you very much. That's very clear. And how do you make the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa? The diagnosis for anorexia nervosa uh, really involves um, a clinician asking good questions, um, asking questions that would help elucidate some of those um, uh, diagnostic particulars for the condition. Um, But my, my most important message is don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, as providers, we want to ask about weight history, about eating patterns. What did you eat for lunch today? Um, these are some of the factors that 
uh, sometimes we skip over and we're asking about general health, but are very important as we're trying to make the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. We also want to ask about thoughts and feelings about body shape and weight. Um, Providers should know that there's a new tool for assessing feeding and eating disorders, uh, the EDA-5. It's uh, an eating disorders assessment tool for the DSM-5 uh, method of diagnosis, and it can be found on Google Chrome, EDA5.org. That could be helpful if somebody has about 10 or 15 minutes to um, evaluate an individual for the full range of uh, possible feeding or eating disorders. Okay, thank you. That's 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 great. Um, sticking with diagnosis, but move on to pitfalls. What would you say are common pitfalls made in the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa? So the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa may be straightforward uh, in some cases, but uh, a few things may make um, the diagnosis confusing. Uh, first off, we want to rule out other explanations for low weight, other medical illnesses uh, that could uh, lead to change in eating and weight should certainly be considered. You know, gastroenterological uh, presentations, um, cancers certainly um, uh certain allergies like significant celiac disease. Um, there are a number of, of conditions out there, autoimmune conditions, um, that certainly a generalist should be considering when uh, someone first presents with low weight. Um, but uh, usually we can rule those out uh, for somebody who's presenting with an eating disorder and move on to really trying to evaluate which eating disorder is present. Um, it is important to remember that we're relying on the patient or family uh, to report on many of the symptoms um, that that uh, characterize anorexia nervosa. And um, another pitfall, I suppose, is that sometimes um, a patient or family uh, may be stuck on medical explanations for some of what's going on. Um, so we may hear from someone who very much is afraid of gaining weight that, um, no, 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 this is really, um, uh, this is a, a stomach problem. This is a, a bloating problem. This is a digestive problem. This is something else. Um, um, and we need to, you know, delicately um, uh, evaluate the medical features um, and begin the process of trying to help a very low weight individual restore to normal weight and um, and see uh, what manifests as we begin to do this. Often um, that's what's needed to really uh, clarify um, uh, what is going on and, and, and whether anorexia nervosa is present in someone who doesn't. Um, uh, come forth with all of the uh, psychological aspects in their response to our initial evaluation questions. Um, thirdly, I think it's important to um, remind clinicians that there's another eating disorder that includes low weight that doesn't have the body shape and weight concerns of anorexia nervosa that we need to keep in mind. And that's a condition called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID. Um, that's a condition where um, a high level of anxiety or phobia about an eating experience or a particular food or a um, sensory uh, concern that may make the normal eating of a full range of, of food types very difficult for an individual, uh, where some of those kinds of features lead to great restriction 
of what someone takes in and may lead to that individual getting into uh, significant nutritional trouble, uh, maybe a difficulty in uh, growing as expected, a real failure to thrive. And um, those folks have no worries about their body shape. Uh, they just need um, uh, nutritional help. Um, and often they um, come to uh, psychiatric or psychological attention because they need behavioral management uh, for that low weight state. But what we find in um, individuals who have ARFID is that as we begin to help them with refeeding, uh, we're not um, seeing any of the reluctance uh, regarding body shape and weight that we would see in anorexia nervosa. And so we, we generally can um, really distinguish these groups. But that is another um, uh, diagnostic confound that should be considered when we're evaluating somebody who may have anorexia nervosa. Okay, thank you, Evelyn. And just to unpick some of those things, is it possible for a person to have more than one condition? Can someone have irritable bowel syndrome and anorexia nervosa? And, and if so, how does that work? Among the eating disorders, uh, we generally make one diagnosis at a time. Uh, very specifically, um, an individual cannot have anorexia nervosa and another eating disorder such as bulimia nervosa or not have anorexia nervosa and ARFID. There's a little bit of a hierarchy that's set up in the diagnostic uh, system where we really evaluate for anorexia nervosa first. Um, and only if someone doesn't have that diagnosis do we move on to other eating disorder diagnoses. But in terms of medical conditions, of course, uh, there are folks who have more than one thing happening in their system. In fact, um, the presence of um, another medical issue celiac disease, irritable bowel syndrome, um, uh, you know, some other conditions may uh, set someone up uh, for um, eating differences that um, if the individual is vulnerable to the development of an eating disorder may relate to um, that individual moving in the direction of developing that eating disorder. So, um, we can't have um, the low weight exclusively uh, due to the medical problem, or um, it's not it's not an eating disorder if the only reason for the low weight is um, the gastrointestinal difficulty. But um, absolutely, we have many folks who may have a medical problem and an eating disorder, and it may make it a little trickier uh, to manage what's happening. But, um, but we do that quite commonly. Okay, and, and just last um, clarification on the anorexia bulimia. If you have anorexia nervosa and, and you're vomiting, then you, you, you're, you have anorexia nervosa, as, as I understand it. Is that correct? That's right. You would have anorexia nervosa binge purge subtype. You would have that subtype of the condition. So that significantly low body weight that is um, at the core of anorexia nervosa um, uh, would put the individual in that diagnostic category. And the thinking is that, um, uh, you know, in terms of clinical management, uh, knowing that uh, weight restoration and nutritional rehabilitation are so important for that person is um, 
you know, is essential for us to recognize and, and consider as we design a treatment plan. And so anorexia nervosa is considered uh, first with the binge purge subtype being the way that we uh, recognize that some binge eating and some uh, vomiting behavior is also a part of the clinical presentation. Okay, thank you. That's that's very clear. Um, that, let's move on to management. Can you tell us what is the mainstay of management? Clinical management is usually behavioral in focus uh, for anorexia nervosa. Um, anorexia nervosa is a behavioral disturbance, after all, um, where the 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 food restriction, uh, the low weight, and the and the low intake. Um, have really gotten the individual into the degree of trouble uh, that leads to the presentation. And we need to help that individual get uh, these features turned around. Um, uh, with that said, it's important to note um, that everybody doesn't develop uh, anorexia nervosa. Uh, there really seem to be some biological vulnerabilities and some biological differences that uh, very much uh, influence who develops this condition. But once it's present, uh, those behavioral disturbances are really the features that need, um, need help and need to get, get turned around. Sometimes medications are used, but um, generally as adjuncts uh, to the treatment. Um, and this uh, behavioral treatment is usually uh, multifaceted. Um, it's often delivered by a multidisciplinary treatment team that's trying to do a number of things uh, in order to um, help refeed, in order to help stabilize some of the medical features that really go awry when someone is so low weight, um, and that um, uh, really helps the individual with those body weight and shape concerns that, that we mentioned at the start. Um, the team might involve a therapist, a medical provider, a dietitian. Um, for our younger patients, there's no question that the family needs to be a part of that treatment team. And we have, in the last number of years, um, really developed a robust evidence base that for our youngest patients, family-based approaches to treatment are the most helpful. Uh, and really, that's because um, uh, our younger patients are living with family, and family offers this um, a tremendously helpful um, partnership um, with, with clinicians in terms of getting uh, behaviors turned around and in terms of helping a younger patient recover. For adult patients, maybe it's not the family, but the principles are really quite similar of um, uh, really focusing on recovery, helping people turn around uh, their eating, their weight, um, and in turn, as they start to become nutritionally healthier, um, some of the associated features, mood, anxiety, obsessive or, or, or real perseverating um, uh, ideas about body shape and weight start to soften, start to resolve. Um, the settings are various where this treatment can be um, delivered, uh, and many individuals with anorexia nervosa receive um, treatment on an outpatient basis, uh, but some need more supervision and more structure, and so there are uh, specialized programs that may use um, 
a more structured outpatient approach. Maybe an individual comes in for the day and participates in uh, some supervised meals and groups and other activities, but go home goes home at night. Um, and maybe for others, they need more supervision still, and they may uh, receive this kind of a treatment in a residential or hospital uh, setting. Um, but the principles are the same. Um, it's about offering the nutritional elements that an individual needs, uh, offering the support needed to change behavior so the individual can take in more of what's recommended, um, offering additional psychological support so that they can begin uh, to make decisions that were so difficult for them to make when they were really in the throes uh, of the illness, and really helping them restore um, you know, pre-illness levels of um, eating weight and other uh, measures of functioning. Okay, thank you. And besides the, the family-based approach for younger patients, are there any other recent advances in, in the management um, of anorexia? There are uh, many interesting areas of, um, of research uh, into our better understanding anorexia nervosa and being able to develop treatments that we um, we think are going to be uh, more helpful for uh, for a challenging condition, um, a condition that has been around for a very long time, uh, a condition that um, for a small subgroup um, really can um, uh, become very serious. Uh, this is an illness, as you mentioned at the start of the interview, that um, comes with high rates of, of uh, morbidity, high rates of mortality, and uh, new treatments are very much needed. Um, what's recently come up is um, uh, that um, olanzapine, an atypical antipsychotic medication, uh, does offer some modest weight a benefit for individuals with anorexia nervosa. Uh, this is not likely uh, anyone's standalone treatment, um, but it is uh, useful for us to know that um, this is a medication that can uh, offer some uh, benefit at a level of something like um, maybe an additional pound per month uh, that can be um, uh, depended on uh, for an individual who is receiving olanzapine compared to uh, offering um, treatment without that medication. Um, uh, in addition, as we're learning about um, uh, differences in um, in neural circuitry and the way that circuitry behaves in the brain for folks who have anorexia nervosa compared with um, individuals who don't have that eating disorder. Um, there's an interest in uh, developing uh, ways to reverse certain habit-like behaviors um, and think about therapies and treatments that might really help folks interrupt uh, routines and patterns of behavior uh, so that they may have available to them a more flexible approach um, to eating and restoring weight. Um, there's some very interesting work that's going on uh, both in the psychological treatment development and in some of the biological uh, treatments. And I think we need to stay tuned uh, to see where science takes us and which additional um, approaches may really uh, become the most fruitful. 
Okay, thank you. And let's move on to pitfalls in management. What would you say are the common pitfalls that you've seen in management? Anorexia nervosa is different from um, many other psychiatric illnesses because the core feature, the, the element where the individual is afraid to achieve healthy measures of weight, um, uh, places that patient um, sometimes in conflict with uh, their clinician who is trying very hard to help uh, the patient make progress, um, help the patient feel better, um, uh, but is is putting uh, normalization of weight front and center, um, which again, as we circle back, is uh, the part that is the most difficult uh, for for the individual who's affected with this with this illness. Um, for so many other conditions, um, patient and clinician are seeing eye to eye on where they need to go, and in this condition, um, it's not so simple. So what's difficult often as a clinician presents um, uh, the treatment options and makes recommendations is that an individual who's affected may say, no, thank you, right, or worse. And um, clinicians don't always know what to do next. Uh, do they insist? Do they push harder? Do they drag in family, even if um, the the patient is an adult? Um, uh, do they uh, do they give up? Do they say, "Okay, I tried"? Um, how do they take those next steps? And this is really, um, you know, where the art has to come together with the science um, in the practice of medicine as we um, uh, work with trying to help an individual who's affected identify what motivates them um, and and what it is that they're trying to achieve, and uh, beginning to see us as we present treatments to our patients as part of the solution, not, not part of the problem. But there's no question that this is a little bit more complicated for this diagnosis than, than what we may find when we're presenting treatments to, um, to other individuals. Um, you know, I, I feel strongly that uh, patients with anorexia nervosa do not want to be sick. They can let us know if we ask them all sorts of things that they've lost or things that have gotten delayed uh, because of the symptoms of illness. Um, but at the same time, these are individuals who are afraid of becoming well. And we have to grapple with that as we uh, frame a treatment and as we support someone through a treatment so that they are uh, really in the best category for benefiting from the treatments that we have. Okay, thank you. And, and last question. Um, what have we missed? What other common questions are you asked by doctors about anorexia nervosa? And what are the answers to those questions? Probably the question that I am most commonly asked by, um, by my colleagues is, um, how do you get these patients to eat? I can talk all I want about the condition and the treatments and the manualized approaches and the evidence base, but providers who've worked with um, these individuals will you know, raise their hand at the end of a, a presentation and simply say, I still don't get it. How do you get through the meal for an individual with this condition? And I do have to say that 
clear behavioral expectations, uh, consistently applied, making sure that um, an individual affected with anorexia nervosa knows um, what is recommended, um, what ought to happen, what what will be uh, the benefit if they're able to complete that goal, um, and, and similarly, what they may be faced with in the event that they continue to have difficulties and can't complete the goal, uh, really can do wonders to move um, an individual through the steps needed um, to get well. And it's worth the try. It's doable. Uh, this is an illness that um, uh, individuals do recover from. Certainly earliest identification, earliest referral to treatment comes with the best outcomes. Um, but I don't give up. Uh, even if someone's tried it once or twice or three times or more, um, I let folks know that this is a condition that we can help people recover from, and it's well worth doing that. Um, these are generally young folks. Uh, these are generally folks with many, many talents and strengths. And um, if we can get them to uh, move to healthy weight and eating, um, there, there's really a lot of benefit to these individuals. I think it's often a surprise, um, even still in the 21st century, uh, to providers uh, um, that uh, anorexia nervosa is a brain-based condition. It's a, um, it's a biological illness. Um, I can describe the behavioral disturbances that are present when someone presents with anorexia nervosa, but these are behavioral disturbances that are uh, mediated by brain changes um, in folks who develop this condition. Um, it's always um, uh, sobering for me to remember that uh, dieting culture is prevalent. Um, uh, you know, large numbers of, of uh, individuals um, uh, by the end of high school will endorse that they've tried a diet. And yet, um, as you mentioned, you know, 0.9% uh, of females, uh, a third as many males, um, will ever develop this illness, this illness of anorexia nervosa. Um, this is a condition that we now understand to have uh, significant genetic influences. This is a condition where when we're learning how neural circuits behave, uh, we recognize that individuals with anorexia nervosa have neural circuits that are behaving differently than folks who don't have this illness. Uh, when we measure the way food choices are made, when we uh, measure how um, uh, you know how people are uh, thinking about and interfacing with food, how they respond to food deprivation, um, hunger cues. Um, we've got a group that behaves differently. For goodness sake, uh, medications don't seem to work the same way in folks with anorexia nervosa as with the rest of the population. I mentioned before that olanzapine uh, uh, seems to have modest weight effects for individual with anorexia nervosa. Uh, these are way scaled down. Uh, weight effects compared with other clinical populations who've used this medication. Um, 
uh, these individuals are different. And I think that's helpful. That's helpful for our engaging um, uh, empathically uh, with these patients, uh, are engaging creatively, are coming up with treatments that really do try to target some of these biological differences. Um, and I do feel optimistic that we are moving in a direction of better understanding this condition and having treatments uh, that are the most likely to work. Okay, thank you very much, Avalyn, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.